Let's open our Bibles together at this time too. The book of Philemon, chapter 1, and verse 13. Philemon 1.13 will be on page 1286 if you're using the Pew Bible this morning. This morning being August 26, 2018, if you're joining us by way of recording. <coughs> Our text is going to be in Philemon 1. Verses 13, 14, and 15. And the title of this morning's message is The Apostle Paul's Retainer. The Apostle Paul's Retainer. <laughs> and we begin with the story of a man who went to see a lawyer. And after he told the lawyer his problem, the lawyer said, before I agree to take your case, you're going to have to give me a $500 retainer fee. Man said, okay, and he paid him the $500. Well, the lawyer thanked him and said, Now, that $500 entitles you to two questions. And the man said, $500 for just two questions? That's awfully steep, isn't it? And the lawyer said, Yes, I suppose it is. What's your second question? Yeah. Well, as you may know, some lawyers require something called a retainer fee, which is just a fancy word for a down payment. We pay lawyers a lot of money to use fancy words <laughs> so that we feel like we're getting our money's worth, don't we? But the meaning of the base word of retainer, the meaning of the word retain is to keep possession of something. That's how Job's wife used it in your first cross-reference in Job 2, verse 9. Then said Job's wife unto him, <clears throat> Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> now, you'd think... After Job lost his health, his wealth, and his children, that he would release his integrity and curse God and die. But instead, he retained it. He kept possession of it. And as we resume our study of the book of Philemon, 
You'll remember that Paul's friend Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who ran away, met the Apostle Paul, and got saved when Paul led him to the Lord. And in this epistle, Paul was sending him back to his master. But, as we're about to see, Paul was tempted to retain Onesimus. Speaking of Onesimus, we read in Philemon 1 and verse 13 these words. Whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead, Philemon, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Instead of sending Onesimus back to his master, Paul thought about keeping him to, as it says there, minister to him in the bonds of the gospel. As you may remember, the Apostle Paul was in prison when he wrote this epistle. And in those days, prisoners were allowed to have friends or servants come into the prison to minister to them. And listen, it is not hard to understand why you would want someone ministering to you in prison in those days. Because in those days, in prison, you were literally fed with bread and water. Look at your next reference in 1 Kings 22 and verse 27. Thus saith the king, Put this fellow in the prison and feed him with bread of affliction and with water of affliction. In other words, if you were in prison in those days, they gave you just enough nourishment to keep you alive. But... They also allowed people to come and feed you a little extra. As we see in our next reference, when some people didn't do that for the Lord. Look at Matthew 25, verses 43 and 44. The Lord says, I was in prison. And ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in prison, and watch now, and did not minister unto thee? And listen, that's what Paul was saying to his friend Philemon. That he thought about keeping his servant to minister to him and and bring him things like extra food, medicine, warm clothing, or whatever. All the things the prison wasn't going to supply him. But 
If you were here last Sunday, you heard me say that under the laws of the Roman Empire, if you came across a runaway slave, you were required by law to return him to his master. And that's why Paul was returning Onesimus. Because in the dispensation of grace, we are required to obey the government. So, here, when Paul says that he was thinking of retaining Onesimus, that doesn't mean that he was thinking of breaking the law. It meant he was thinking of writing Philemon a letter and saying, Hey, I got your slave. He's still yours. But I am keeping him to minister to me in your stead. Philemon, I know if you were here, you'd be bringing me extra food and medicine. So I'm keeping your servant with me to do that for me. Now, if you haven't been with us for this study, maybe you're wondering, what is all this doing in the Bible? (laughs) Well, last week we learned that the book of Philemon doesn't teach Pauline doctrine. It's just a personal letter about a personal matter. The reason God included it in your scriptures is because it illustrates Pauline doctrine. And it illustrates how things work in the dispensation of grace. And what you're seeing here is an illustration of something that Paul talked about in your next reference in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Where Paul says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you, what's those next three words? In Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now you know what an ambassador is, right? Somebody that the president sends to another country in his stead to to represent him and to do what he would do if he was there in that country. Well, if Jesus Christ were here, folks, he'd be begging sinners to be reconciled to God. But he's not here. You're here in His stead. Now, you might not think much of yourself. And maybe nobody else thinks much of you either. But God says you are an ambassador for the God of all creation. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And notice something. He doesn't say you should be an ambassador. He says you are one. So the only question is, are you a good ambassador for Christ? Or are you a bad ambassador? Are you doing what Jesus Christ would do if He were here? Are are you living a 
godly life that befits an ambassador of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Are you beseeching sinners to be reconciled to God? You know, that word beseech means to beg. God's not too proud to beg sinners to be reconciled. His only problem is His ambassadors are too proud to beg sometimes, aren't we? But what you're seeing here, you're here ministering in Christ's stead. You see that illustrated when Paul thought of keeping Onesimus to minister in Philemon's stead. This is a book of illustrations, folks. But now, I don't have to tell you, when it comes to keeping another man's servant, that's not the kind of thing that you do without permission. Remember, we saw last week that a man's slave was his possession. Do you remember what God said to the Jews in Leviticus 25? I think we looked at this verse just last week. In Leviticus 25, 45, and 46, God told His people of the strangers, of the Gentiles, that do sojourn among you, of them shall ye buy, and of their families, they shall be your possession. They'll be your, your slaves, your bondmen forever. Now, I am not going to review why God allowed His people to own slaves. Uh, get last week's message. Read the summary in the bulletin of last week's, last week's, <laughs> last week's message. Uh, but the thing I want you to notice here is what that verse says. That a, a slave was his master's possession. And let me ask you, if you found you were out in your yard one day and you found your neighbor's rake in your yard or at the place where your yard meets his yard, would you look at that thing and say, "This, I know my neighbor, this is his favorite rake. It's the love of his life. He loves to be out there gardening and stuff. It's his, it's the love of his life. It's his pride and joy. And it's his fault he let me find it. Is that what you would say? No! You wouldn't assume that you could use it. Even if you're good friends, you don't think to yourself, well, he won't mind if I use his rake. You'd ask permission, wouldn't you? And you know what? That's what Paul went on to do as we move now into verse 14 in your Bible. In verse 14, Paul says, after saying he was thinking about keeping Onesimus, he tells Philemon, but without thy mind, without your permission, without your knowing about it, would I do nothing. That thy benefit should not be as it were, of necessity, but willingly. Now, when Paul says, without thy mind, I would do nothing, he's saying he wouldn't even think of retaining Onesimus unless he had his master's permission. But, 
in the rest of that verse, he says, with or without Philemon's permission, Philemon would benefit if Paul kept his servant. He'd just benefit more if Philemon willingly let him keep his servant. So now we have to figure out how, how Philemon would benefit if Paul kept his servant. Well, you know it wouldn't be any benefit to Philemon in this life. I mean, we talked about this before. Paul was in Rome. Philemon was in Colossae, where the letter to the Colossians was written, 1,200 miles apart. And listen, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that a slave who's 1,200 miles apart isn't much of a benefit to you. No, he's talking about Philemon's benefit at the judgment seat of Christ, his reward. And you know what this does? This illustrates how thorough the Lord is going to be when it comes to rewarding us. Because remember, Onesimus was Philemon's possession. So, when Paul says that Philemon would benefit at the judgment seat of Christ from letting Paul use his possession... That means that God is not only planning to reward you for faithfully serving Him, He also plans to reward you for letting your possessions be used to serve Him. And listen, lots of that goes on in the ministry. A few... Weeks ago, Bernardo and Carol Kressmeyer were here at our church presenting their ministry when I was speaking at the conference in Bightley. <clears throat> and if I remember, Deb, you told me that they were driving whose car? Don's? Don Webb lent them his car. Was it the Cadillac? The Cadillac! Bernardo, the missionaries were driving around in a Cadillac this week, or that, or the, well, during their stay here. Bernardo's son, George, is at Northern Grace Youth Camp in charge of things this summer. Ray Siler's letting him use his car. When Dean and Sheba were here last Sunday, um, Virginia and Arianne let them use one of the bedrooms in their house to stay at. And, uh, oh, just this past week at uh, Berean Bible Society, Pastor Jim Tower came up to me and said, do you have lights on the side of your uh, pulpit? Uh, he was reading on Facebook. Dean was talking about the lights, I guess, on, on the side. Well, these were lent to us by Brother Dwayne Huff. Uh, for some reason, he had professional video lighting. And uh, he's lending them to the amplifiers here we have here and a lot of other stuff. In this church, Thornton has lent to the Lord's work here. He's good with electronics and stuff like that. And as the Apostle Paul is teaching us here, folks, they're going to benefit at the judgment seat of Christ. The Lord's going to reward them for lending their possessions to the Lord's work. You know what that means? That means if you've got something that 
you think the Lord's work could use, I would encourage you to lend your possessions to God's work. And that includes the money you possess. And maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Money given to the Lord's work is a gift. It's not a loan. It's not like you're going to be getting it back. And you would think so. I mean, it's not like Dwayne's lights. He can come and take them home anytime he wants. But look what God says in Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 17. Proverbs 19, 17, it says, He that hath pity upon the poor does what? Lendeth to the Lord. Part of serving the Lord has always involved ministering to poor poor saints. It was a big part of Paul's ministry, wasn't it? And God says, if you pity the poor, you lend to the Lord. And He intends to pay you back. You say, well, how do you know that? (laughs) Well, look at the way the rest of that verse reads. I gave it to you in two parts. In Proverbs 19.17 He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will God repay him again. So, listen, I bring all that up. I bring up the money that you possess and lend to the Lord because when Paul says that he wants Philemon's benefit to be of willingness and not of necessity, if those words sound familiar, it's because that's how our Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, that's how he tells us to give our money under grace, doesn't he? Look at your next reference. Speaking of financial giving in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, Paul says, every man should give, is the context, every man gives according as he purposes in his heart. Not according to 10% of his income. According as he purposes in his heart. So let him give. Not grudgingly or of what? (laughs) There's that word. Or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. Hey, I don't have to tell you, under the law, it was a necessity to give 10% of your income. That was called a tithe. Under grace, we are not to give of necessity. You say, well, how are we supposed to give? Look at your next reference, 2 Corinthians 8.12, where Paul uses the other word that that he uses with Philemon. If there be first a willing mind... It is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to what he hath not. If you don't have 10% to give, the Lord does not expect you to give according to what you have not. That's what it says. You know why? Because people who don't have 10% to tithe don't give it willingly. They give it grudgingly of necessity. 
And that is not how God wants us to give under grace. And you see this illustrated in Philemon when he uses those words willingly, not of necessity. Now, let me make one thing very clear. You'll be rewarded for any kind of giving that you give to the Lord's work. And you see that illustrated when Paul told Philemon, he says, you're going to benefit even if uh, you don't give me permission. If you, if you don't willingly let me use your servant, you're going to be rewarded. But he says you're going to be rewarded more for willingly letting me use your servant. And that's why I believe that God will bless any anything given financially to His work. But He'll bless it more and reward it more if you do it willingly and not of necessity. Beloved, God is interested in how much you give, but He's more interested in how you feel about it. And I think we're seeing that illustrated here. So make sure you give willingly. Now, as we move into our last verse in our text in Philemon 1 and verse 15, we see another illustration of Pauline doctrine. And we're going to read verses 15 and 16, but we're just going to save our comments for verse 16 next week. <clears throat> verse 15, Paul says, for perhaps he therefore departed for a season, speaking of Onesimus, maybe he ran away for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant. A brother beloved. I've led him to the Lord. He's a brother in Christ now. Especially to me, but how much more unto thee is he beloved? Both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is saying, maybe the reason Onesimus ran away is so that he would meet me and get saved and you could have him as your brother in Christ forever. You know, he, he's, he's telling him, kind of reminding him, you'd only have him as a slave until he died, right? <laughs> but... You can have him as a brother in Christ for eternity. And that word season, I want to focus on that when Paul says in verse 15, for perhaps he therefore departed for a season. That word, if you are really paying attention to the details in Sunday's uh, scripture reading this morning in Acts 13, Paul used that word when he said these words to an unsaved Jew in your next reference in Acts 13 and verse 11. In Acts 13, 11, the hand of the Lord is upon thee and thou shalt be blind. Not seeing the sun, there's our word, for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Now, if you remember the story, you know that in that chapter, Paul was trying to get the gospel of salvation to a Gentile. 
but an unsaved Jew was opposing him and trying to keep the Gentile from hearing the gospel. That's a picture, like we said. That's an illustration of what was happening in Paul's day as he was trying to get the gospel to the Gentiles. Unsaved Jews were opposing him wherever he went. As soon as in the next chapter, as you see in your next reference in Acts 14 and verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren who were trying to get them the gospel. And when Paul said to that Jew that he would be blind for a season, that's an illustration of what you read in your next reference. Where Paul says in Romans 11.25, blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Paul says that Jews today, and even to this day, are spiritually blind. But he says, that blindness is not permanent. It's only going to last for a season, till the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And you're probably thinking, well, what's the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, earlier in Romans 11... The Apostle Paul talked about the fullness of the Jews. Look at Romans 11 and verse 12. He said, speaking of the Jews, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and he's talking about how when Israel fell, that all of a sudden salvation went to the rest of the world, and the diminishing of Israel be the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness... Do you see how he's drawn a contrast between Israel's fall and their fullness? Listen, Israel fell when they rejected Jesus Christ by stoning his prophet Stephen. So they'll be full when they receive Jesus Christ. See how it works? When they rejected him, they fell. When they receive Him, that's their fullness. When's that going to happen? Well, look at your next reference where Paul goes on. to He talks in Romans 11, 25 and 26 about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in and then he, did, he just explains what will happen after that. And all Israel will be saved. As it is written, they'll come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Israel, from Jacob. After the rapture, after the tribulation, when Jesus Christ comes out of the Mount Zion in heaven, and there is one up there, and returns to establish His kingdom here on the earth. That verse says, all the Jews will be saved. And he's talking about all the Jews that are left after the battle of Armageddon, because all the unsaved Jews die at the battle of Armageddon. That's when Israel's fullness will come in. Or the fullness, yeah, yeah, Israel's fullness will come in. When Christ returns and they receive Him and He establishes that kingdom. 
Alright, we know what the fullness of Israel is, right? If the kingdom of heaven on earth is Israel's fullness, well, then the rapture must be our fullness, don't you think? Because that's when we're going to be taken to the kingdom of heaven in heaven. And Paul says that Israel's going to be blind until the fullness of the Gentiles become it, until the rapture. Then, the season of their blindness going to be over. So, when Onesimus departed from Philemon for a season, like that verse says, so that Philemon could receive him forever, well, that illustrates how Israel departed from God for a season so that God could receive them forever in the kingdom. You know, those words are actually used of Israel. When Paul says in verse 15, he departed that he might be received forever. Look what it says about the Jews in Acts 28. 28, 28 and 29. Be it known unto you, Paul says to the Jews, that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles. And when he had said those words, the Jews did what? They departed and had great reasoning amongst themselves. When God sent Israel's salvation to the Gentiles, folks, the Jews departed and they've been reasoning among, reasoning among themselves ever since. Trying to figure out why God left them for the Gentiles. But we're seeing pictured here, the reason they departed was so God could receive them forever in the kingdom. Do you know what Paul calls that kingdom in your next reference? Romans eleven twelve. If the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them... No, that's not the one. Romans eleven fifteen. You turned the page and I didn't. If the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world... What will the receiving of Israel be? But life from the dead. And you see all of that illustrated here in Philemon with those words, departed and received. That was the hard part. If you got through that, if you didn't, just get the bulletin article next week. But now we come to, I think, a part that you will find kind of fun. Because we come to, in verse 15, the the philosophical part of the message. Paul seems to be saying, in verse 15, well, let's read it again. For perhaps Onesimus, Onesimus, why do I have trouble with that halfway through the message every week? Onesimus, for perhaps Onesimus therefore departed for a season that you should receive him forever. Paul seems to be saying, Maybe the reason he ran away was so that he could meet me and get saved and return to you. But if that's what Paul's saying, we have to ask, whose reason is he talking about? I mean, it can't be Onesimus' reason for running away. He didn't, I guarantee he didn't wake up one day and say, 
I know what I'm going to do today. I'm going to run away so I can come back and be a slave forever. <laughs> that is not what he... Listen, slaves knew in those days if they ran away, they could be punished severely. So, that's not Onesimus' reason for running away. So that Philemon could get him back forever. And it couldn't be Philemon's reason either. Philemon didn't wake up one day and say, you know, if I let my slave escape, he'll go out, he'll get saved, and he'll come back to me. (laughs) That's not likely either. No, it has to be saying it's God's reason. Paul is saying the reason Onesimus ran away was because God wanted him to get saved and return to Philemon and obey him as servants should. But here, we got to be really careful, folks. We can't say God forced Onesimus to run away. You know why? Running away was a sin. Look what Paul tells servants in your next uh, reference in Ephesians 6 and verse 5. Servants, run away from your masters. Is that what yours says? If it does, it's a misprint. No, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters. God tells servants to obey their masters, not run away. That means running away was a sin. And God is not the author of sin. God, in this book, never made anybody sin, ever. But, God knows how to use men's sins, doesn't He? He knows how to use sin to accomplish His will. And it's His will for men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We know that. Let me give you, for instance, a well-known example of this kind of thing. Back in the Old Testament, remember the story of Joseph? Joseph's brethren hated him. And that was a sin. Then they sold him into slavery. And that was another sin. Hey, Rex, they're looking peaking. Turn that air conditioning up. (laughs) But when Joseph got to be the ruler in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh in Egypt, That scared his brethren who sold him into slavery, didn't it? They figured he'd want revenge. Listen to what Joseph said instead. In Genesis 45, 7 and 8. He said to his brethren, God sent me before you to save your lives by a great deliverance. God knew there was this famine coming and so he had Joseph put in a position to save the corn and save everybody's lives by a great deliverance. So look what Joseph says to his brethren. I want my revenge on you now for selling me into slavery. No! So now it was not you that sent me here, but God. Now the question is, how God do that? How did God make his brethren hate him enough to sell him into slavery without being the author of sin? 
I mean, you can't say he made them do that because that makes God the author of sin. Now, what he did, it's genius. It's sure the genius of God. What he did instead, God noticed (laughs) that Joseph's brethren already hated him. It all started in your next reference in Genesis 37.4. When his brethren saw that their father loved him, this is Joseph, more than all the rest of them, they hated him. And God saw that. And knowing they hated him already, God sent Joseph a dream, didn't he? Telling him that someday he was going to rule over his brethren. How'd they take that? (laughs) Did they like hearing that someday their younger brother was going to rule over them? Well, look at your next reference. In Genesis 37 and verse 8, His brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or or shalt thou have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Well, who sent him that dream? Whose words were those? Those were God's words. That's how God caused them to hate him enough to sell him and sin into slavery. He used his word given to Joseph in a dream. He didn't make them sin by selling him. He just gave his word to Joseph. And when they heard it, they reacted sinfully against the word of God. That's what was going on there. But you know today, I hope you know today, God is not speaking to us through dreams. He speaks only through His Word. So, what about Onesimus? How did God get Onesimus to sin by running away? It was through His Word. It was through the Word of God that He was hearing from His Master. Follow me now. From what we've seen in this study, Philemon was a pretty good Christian. Look in your Bible in verse 4. Remember when Paul said to Philemon, he said, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy faith and love which you have toward the saints, or toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Philemon was a great Christian man. He, he was, he was such a good, godly Christian. I think we have to conclude that he was witnessing to his slave, don't you think? But Onesimus resented hearing the gospel from his high and mighty master. And that drove him away. That caused him to run away. So, it wasn't God's word in a dream that got Onesimus to sin. It was God's word in the mouth of Philemon. So Onesimus runs away. He gets a job in the prison where Paul is, feeding the prisoners. He meets Paul. He hears the gospel again. But this time, the dynamic has changed. He's no longer hearing it from some high and mighty master who's above him. He's hearing it from a prisoner who's below him. 
and he believes the gospel. Because he's hearing it from someone who's beneath him. Someone who probably was singing in prison like he did in Acts 16 in Philippi, remember? So, what you're seeing here is an illustration of how God works today in the dispensation of grace. He works through His Word and through you, His people. You say, but if that's all true, how come Paul says in the beginning of verse 15, perhaps this is how it's happened? Well, Paul couldn't be sure of all this because, believe it or not, don't stone me when I say it, there was an element of chance involved. I mean, God could work through His Word to make Onesimus run away. But He couldn't work through His Word to get him to run 1,200 miles away to the city of Rome and bump into the Apostle Paul. That word, perhaps, you look it up in the dictionary, you know what it means? It means it may be by chance. By chance. Do you see that word perhaps? Do you see the word hap? You think of the word happen? And look how the Bible uses the word hap in Ruth 2.3, your next reference. Speaking of Ruth, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers and her hap was to light on a part of the field Belonging to Boaz. She happened to pick Boaz's field that day. Just happened to. That word hap means chance. Look at your next reference. Second Samuel 1.6. I, I kind of hyphenated it. Your Bible doesn't do that. But I did it to, to, to draw attention to... It says, as I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa. Well, let me ask you. What's another word for the word chance? Luck. I mean, gambling games are called games of chance. I mean, if you want to waste your money, you can go. And if, if Lady Luck smiles on you when you're playing a game of chance, maybe you'll win a few shekels. <laughs> now, listen, I know. I know it's a sensitive subject. I know some Christians get very upset if you suggest that there is such a thing as chance. I saw it personally. A few years ago, Pastor Fredrickson wrote an article in the Brian Searchlight where I'm the editor talking about luck and he got several, shall we say, enthusiastic letters from people. People who I guess must believe that uh, we're... What do you call those? Marionette dolls. God is up there like Geppetto with the strings and Pinocchio's down here. And, and listen, that's not what the Bible says. Look, look what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 9-11. The race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but time and what happens to all of them? Time and chance happens to them all. Did you know Moses believed in luck? Look at Deuteronomy 22.6. If a bird's nest chanced to be before thee in the way in any tree. 
Did you know the Lord Jesus Christ believed in luck? Your next reference, he's talking about the, the, the Good Samaritan. How he got injured and by chance in Luke 10.31, there came down a certain priest that way. Beloved, if God is pulling our strings, you can blame Him for your sins. And He's not. He gave us free will. That's one of the foundational doctrines in the book of Genesis. Volition. Freedom of choice. He gave us free will to make free choices and sometimes things just happen by chance. Speaking of a bird by chance, I remember visiting my sister in college in Arizona State University in 1968. My sister had not been driving for very long and she was driving my family around in the mountains and all of a sudden a bird hit the windshield by chance. And she took her hands off the wheel. Ah! And my dad, being a dad, said, don't ever take your hands off the steering wheel. But things happen. And it was, it looks like by chance that Onesimus met Paul. And Paul's telling Philemon in verse 15, maybe this is how you should look at it all. Don't look at it as your, as your slave ran away. Look at it as God using sin and His Word and chance to do what we read in Acts 28. 8.28 We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to His purpose. When He says all things work together for good, what things? Things like sin and chance and the Word of God. They all work together for Philemon's good. He got his runaway slave back. And now, instead of an unsaved man who resented him, his slave was a saved man who wanted to obey God by obeying him. Did all things work together for Philemon's... Yes! And you say, well, how come it doesn't work that way for me? How come stuff like that doesn't happen to me? Well, you know what? It does. Just not every day of your life. Don't forget, this event was so remarkable that it got included in the Word of God here. Our problem is that we expect God to see God doing this every single day. And that's just not how it works. Your God is patient. And we have to learn to be patient too. But remember now, Remember how I said God also works through you, through His people? Well, God also needed to work through Philemon. Remember I said masters had the power to punish runaway slaves severely, even to death. Well, if Philemon executed his servant, then, then, then all of this, all things working together for good would be for nothing. Last week we saw Paul ask Philemon to treat Onesimus mercifully like God treated him when he saved him. And if Philemon didn't do that, 
If he didn't obey the Word of God through Paul, all things would not have worked together. So, as usual, it all comes down to you. God's good in your life comes down to whether or not you obey God's Word through the Apostle Paul. And all the chance in the world can't change that. So if you want change in your life, you're not happy with your life, why not begin today to study Paul's epistles, learn Paul's epistles, and obey God through Paul's epistles? But if you're not saved this morning, if you're not saved, you need to know God is not going to make you get saved. We've been talking about this. God never makes anybody do anything. There's an old saying that I like to use to to describe how God works today. (laughs) I don't know where I heard this, but it says, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. Eh? I think you'd agree with that. You got a right to swing your fist all you want, but it ends. If you, you hit somebody else's nose, that's an assault. You get arrested for that. You have no right to do that. You have free will, but your free will ends where his nose begins. God is all powerful, but his right to exercise his will ends where your will begins. He's decided it that way. He gave you free choice. And He never interferes with it. That means you, if you're not saved, you must decide to believe that His Son paid for all of your sins. And that is the only reason why God would let you into heaven. And if you will decide to believe that, God will save you. Amen? Father, we thank You for this epistle that just shows Your genius after teaching all those Pauline doctrines in those 12 Pauline epistles. You got to the end and you just showed how it would all work out in the life of Your people. Well, that's why we come here Sunday after Sunday, not just to learn Pauline doctrine, but to learn how it can work in our lives. Give us, I pray, the interest in Your Word and knowing it so that we can live it. I pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.